Fun fact, 71% of binge-watching is accidental. I say this seven episodes into a new series I just started and couldn't quit last night. It's me, Cindy. But is binge-watching really accidental? Not when you learn about the -the behind-the-curtain tricks to keep you plunked down on the couch, watching sometimes an entire season or series before you get hold of yourself and turn off the TV. You don't think Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, who have millions of dollars invested in trying to get and keep your eyeballs, just cross their fingers and hope you keep watching, do you? Because, nope, that's not how they do it. Turns out there is a strong likelihood that they are designing to dictate your viewing habits to increase your staying time. Surprise? Take Netflix and how they, are you ready for this? Tweak the artwork on the home page to individual tastes. Yeah, they learn your taste and they put it to work. For instance, fans of romance films might be more tempted to click on Goodwill Hunting if the graphic is Matt Damon and Minnie Driver in a lip lock. Take it a step further. You watch a lot of movies with Uma Thurman, do you? They know that. That's why the Pulp Fiction artwork might feature, well, Uma. But if you're more a fan of John Travolta, well then, look at that. It's John on that Pulp Fiction photo. So there's that. But let's say you're watching a TV series. How does Netflix trick, uh, encourage you to keep watching? With their post-play function, which follows the end of an episode with a photo and short synopsis of what happens next. But the real trick is while you're reading that and before you have time to convince yourself to stop, their autoplay triggers that next episode and boom, you're in. On the clock, Netflix gives you five seconds to make up your mind about watching the next episode and then serves it up if you haven't bailed. And they add a bonus to offset even a nanosecond of guilt. One social scientist, which sounds like a cool job, explains that the primitive reptilian part of our brain works so that if we see a cookie, if we're not careful, we'll eat the cookie. Even if we're thinking it's not good for me, or I don't want a cookie, or I should have something healthy instead, or why am I having a cookie? Anyway, Netflix gifts you with the skip intro button, theoretically removing a tiny bit of guilt by making you think you're skimming through an episode. Yeah, I fell for that myself. I can't do anything about that reptilian part of our brains, but I do know that there is a way to opt out of autoplay. If you have some time and patience, apparently, you're going to have to hunt it down somewhere, but it is on your account page. Again, somewhere. That reptilian brain of yours has more impact on your choices than you may give it credit for. Take subscriptions, for example. You know, when you see an offer to get a magazine or sample a new membership or get a free trial for, you know, Netflix? Yeah, sampling is still the very best way for a potential customer to become an actual customer. But it's more than that. It turns out that all those try this for free for a limited time or for a special price offers are banking on you being too, well, let's say busy or distracted rather than lazy to follow up or cancel before your credit card, which you provided as part of the sign-up, is charged. The full amount. They call it auto-renew. I call it getting duped. I'll add to that that in some companies, even if you've scheduled, canceled the -the fill-in-the-blank account in your calendar, you may still not get it done before you're charged. Personal experience? The Boston Globe. Super cheap price for a three-month subscription. Yeah, sure, I'll sign up. But then after enough time that I forget about making sure I cancel... I get a notice from PayPal. 
that the amount that's way more than it's worth to me has been paid to Boston Globe. And I'm like, no. So I log on to their website. And after having reset my password, because who can remember everything, I get to the your account page and I see that you can only cancel by phone. Really. I have a feeling this is going to be crazy making. And I am 100% correct. First, it's the monkey shines of a voicemail system designed to make you fling your phone across the room. You know, I don't have a lot of patience, but I soldier on. Finally, I find myself parked on hold, waiting for someone to help me. And waiting. Tick, tick, tick. And waiting. During which time I am subjected to bad hold music, interspersed with messages about why I should subscribe to the Boston Globe, and an occasional message telling me that if I don't want to hold, I can leave my number and someone will call me back. I don't believe that's really going to happen, so I continue to hold. But that if you want to leave your number message was apparently recorded at somebody's desk, and while they were recording, somebody nearby was having some fun and singing some line from some unrecognizable song, but really loud. And my guess is the person doing the recording probably did five or 10 or 12 or 35 attempts before they got it right, and they finally just hit the button to save it and went back to their work, not realizing that the guy who was the office clown had joined her in the recording. Yeah, that was true. So finally, after no exaggeration, a solid hour. I surrender and press the button to leave my number. And what do you think happens? Disconnected. No! Yes! At this point, my stress level is dangerous. So I go on to the next thing, vowing to start over first thing in the morning, which I do to almost exactly the same results, only this time I don't try to leave a number, but finally throw in the towel for the day after 45 minutes. Not good for my health, physical or mental. Now, I'm a woman on a mission, so the only thing I can do, aside from driving up to Boston and knocking on their door, is to go back to PayPal, deny the payment, and stop any future payments. I don't remember whether they called back the charge or not. I only know that was a very big lesson in subscriptions, payments, and of course, one more reason to hate voicemail systems, which caused me to just lose any semblance of calm. But you already knew that. So heads up on taking advantage of those introductory offers. Speaking of losing, did you hear about the school custodian in Ohio who found a purse wedged between lockers that was lost in 1957? Yeah, that made national news because really there's nothing else important we need to know about in the world right now. And what was in it? Well, not the fascinating time capsule. It could have been. Still, it belonged to a high school girl and it contained a single stick of beech nut peppermint gum, one pink eraser, three pencils, two lipsticks, both red, of course. When you think about it, it's likely red was the only color offered in 1957. A library card, a couple of ticket stubs from football games, a 1957 calendar, a couple of school pictures of presumably people who were her friends at that point, and five pennies, which even in 1957 still couldn't have bought anything more than maybe a stick of gum or two. But this high school girl didn't have any money. I mean, not like she had an ATM card or a visa, because, you know, no ATM cards or visas at that point. So really, just five cents? No wonder there wasn't a bigger search for her purse. There's a statistic that points to the more money a lost wallet contains the higher the likelihood of it being turned in. Huh. Not that her purse wedged deeply between two lockers could have been found without apparently some serious probing, but if it had, would it have gotten back to her with only five cents and a single stick of gum? Back about 15 years ago, there was a lost wallet study comparing return rates in New York City versus Tokyo. Want to guess where the most wallets got returned? If you said New York, you're 100% wrong. 
Tokyo's 80% was eight times the measly 10% that went back to their Manhattan owners. Wonder why? Well, it turns out it's not so much about honesty as it is about the culture and a Japanese law that urges people to turn in lost property. With well over 6,000 small satellite police stations dotted throughout the country, they make it very easy to drop off the over 4 million lost items turned into police every year. The most common? Wallets, purses, cash, and umbrellas. And a remarkably high percentage, like 83% of all lost cell phones, for example, get reunited with their owners. Lost items are held locally for a month before being added to the 900,000 already held in the huge Lost and Found Center, which has a 7,100-square-foot room dedicated solely to umbrellas. Once there, every item is checked for identifying information, then entered into a searchable Lost and Found website. The law also includes a reward system, giving a 5 to 20% reward if the owner gets it back or the option to claim it if the owner doesn't show up within three months. But beyond the reward system, it's Japanese culture that encourages even young children to turn in found coins or trinkets to police who treat it with the same respect as a cell phone, wallet, or mm, umbrella. So while you'll never get back the time that you spent binging on Netflix... You can at least take comfort in believing that if you lose your purse in a locker and kiss that baby goodbye for 60 years, but should you lose your wallet on your next trip to Japan, you have some reasonably good odds of getting it back within the first couple of months. Interesting world we live in, right? If you want, you could subscribe to the It's Me, Cindy podcast. You won't need a credit card ever because it's just me trying to make life a little more fun, a little more satisfying, and sometimes just to help us all sidestep tricky business. <laughs>